Jodcast, making a close approach to your ears. With Michael Brown, Liz Guzman, Philippa Hartley, Libby Jones, Mark Perver, and Hector Vives. The Jodcast, February 2013, Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Liz and Mark and Hector are presenting here with me. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. So this is Hector's first show. So, Hector, tell us about your work and what are you doing here in the University of Manchester? Hi. Well, first, I'm a PhD student from the University of Valencia in Spain. And I'm doing work on gravitational lensing of quasars. Well, quasars are very bright, very far away objects. In fact, billions of light years away. But sometimes we see exactly behind a galaxy whose mass distorts the light coming from the quasar and creates more than one image of it. Now, we can use this distortion of the light to measure the mass distribution of the galaxy by taking into account how it was uh, deviated from the original trajectory, which allows us to know some properties of the dark matter that could be surrounding uh, that lens galaxy, as we call them. Or we could even uh, use the magnification of the images of the quasar to study some of its properties. Because quasars are actually supermassive black holes with a disk of really hot matter surrounding them and spiraling down. Oh, very good. Um, so what telescopes are you using to observe this? Oh, yeah, well, in Valencia I've used a telescope called IAC-80 in the Canary Islands uh, to do some following of some quasars because they have some variability and this, they help us disentangle some of the effects by the stars of the galaxy if they are in the path of the light too. Now we are trying to use the um, big new telescope that we have called the Grand Telescopio Canarias or GTC getting some mid-infrared uh, images which through our atmosphere is really hard thing to do. And now in Manchester, I'm getting some radio images, radio observations to have a broader vision of the phenomenon. Yes, that's really wide range of wavelengths yep. that you're using to observe these quasars. In the show this time, we talked to Maria del Mar Rubio about how massive stars lose their mass, and Dr. Michael Brown answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Philippa talks to Dr. Hema Jansen about using pulsars to detect gravitational waves for this month's Jodbyte. I'm talking to Hjema Janssen for Jodbyte. Hi, Hjema. Hello. You're working on pulsars. Can you tell us about what pulsars are and why they're useful? Of course. So, as you said, my main uh, interest of work is uh, studying radio pulsars, and we observe these pulsars with the... Uh, among others, with the Lovell Telescope here at Jodrell Bank. Uh, it's a radio telescope, and pulsars are a very specific type of star. They are the remains of uh, normal stars, which, um, when they were quite heavy as being a normal star, at the end of their life they exploded as a supernova, where uh, the, the outer layers of the, the normal star were expelled, and you end up with the core of the normal star, which is a very tiny ball of, of mainly neutrons. The, the neutron stars are about 1.4 times as massive as our own sun, but they're only kilometers in, in diameter. So you're really looking at a very compact object here. And the nice thing about these type of neutron stars is that they're spinning around very fast. So they're rotating with a period of, of about only one second up to about 500 times a second, uh, roughly. 
and they're also very highly magnetized. So the combination of this rotation in the high magnetic field makes them uh, emit a, a radio emission in a bundle, a bit like a lighthouse. So um, that's a, a very nice thing to study. So every time the star rotates, you get a bundle of this uh, this radio emission that sweeps across the Earth, and uh, that's how we see them as pulses, which is where the name comes from. And what do these radio emission pulses tell us? So the nice thing is that they, they rotate very fast, and so you can see it as, as a lighthouse, but also a bit like a clock. So because these are very stable uh, rotators, because they rotate so fast, you can use them as tools, basically, as, as clocks. And that's why my field is called pulsar timing, because we're using pulsars as clocks. So we try to measure each um, each pulse of the, of the pulsar coming to the Earth, and from the way these pulses behave, we can learn about the stars themselves. So because they emit radio emission, they, they lose energy and, and they slow down in their rotation. Also, when they are in a binary with another star, you have the effects of the orbit being transmitted to the arrival times of these pulses. So by carefully measuring and, and monitoring these pulsars, we can study what the, bi uh, the binary does and how it evolves. So what does your research involve? Um, so this is the main thing that I do in my research, so I use the, these pulsars as clocks. And the specific thing of my research is to try and use these pulsars, uh, a lot of these pulsars, as a, as a subset. So we, we make an array of the pulsars and we try to detect gravitational waves by carefully looking at the signals of about 20 of those stars at the same time. Cool. So can you tell me a bit more about what a gravitational wave is and how we actually detect them? Yes, of course. A gravitational wave is a prediction made by Einstein and they are thought to be um, emitted by, massive, for example, massive uh, objects orbiting around each other. So um, because they are so massive, they change the space-time around them. So it's a bit like um, if you throw a stone into a pond, you get ripples of the water around it. And that's sort of comparable to what happens if you have uh, two black holes orbiting each other, for example. And there are different objects that can generate gravitational waves, and that is um, also the difference between several gravitational wave detectors. So they're all sensitive to a different frequency regime. Um, for example, you have LIGO, which is a ground-based uh, detector. And LIGO, like all gravitational wave detectors that we are currently um, using, they work based on this uh, principle of interferometry. So they're trying to measure differences in path lengths, basically. Mm -hmm. And the ground-based detectors like LIGO and Virgo, and there is one called GEO600, they are measuring smaller scales than, for example, what we do with Pulsar Timing Array, because we are doing basically exactly the same thing as LIGO, but then on a galaxy scale. So next to LIGO, we have also, there is also a plan to, um, to put spacecraft in, into space to launch uh, a space mission, which is called ELISA. Mm -hmm. And, um, this works as well, also like LIGO with, with laser interferometry. So they have uh, three spacecraft flying in an orbit, just trailing the Earth in the orbit around the Sun. They are trying also to measure differences in, in the arrival times of the laser light by the interferometry principle. Okay. So it's a slightly bigger scale than LIGO, but a smaller scale again than the pulsar timing array okay. that we are working here in Europe. And what are the main observational challenges with looking at gravitational waves? 
Well, gravitational waves are uh, very small things, and um, we only know that they exist by measuring the changes in pulsars, in, in, in orbits of pulsars. So Einstein predicted that because of the emission of gravitational waves, the orbit of a pulsar around another star would change. And we have measured that using pulsar timing about 30 years ago, and a Nobel Prize was already awarded for that, for the proof that gravitational wave existed. But okay. that was uh, an indirect detection, so okay. we only measured the effect of the gravitational wave emission on the orbit, mm -hmm. but not the gravitational waves themselves. We are looking for changes in path lengths here, and they are very, very small. Also, the pulsar signals themselves are really weak. I said before that we are trying to measure each pulse of the pulsar, mm -hmm. but we actually have to observe for quite a long time to get one pulse uh, signal. We have to add it all up. Also, what we're doing is we're using quite wide bands in observing, um, and the interstellar medium has an effect on the signals that are emitted by the pulsar. So uh, what happens is that at the lower frequencies that we observe at, at the lower part of our band, the signals arrive later than at the higher part of our band. So, sorry, by band you mean the frequency range? Yeah, the, the observing frequency okay. range. So yeah. we have about 100 megahertz or up to a 500 megahertz observing mm -hmm. range that we uh, we observe at the same time. But because these pulses are like happening every uh, couple of milliseconds, you have the danger that they smear out over the whole band. So you have to correct for that. And you don't know in advance exactly how much of delay there is. Mm -hmm. So you have to correct for that and then integrate in time as well to mm -hmm. get your signal. Also, one of the difficulties for actually detecting gravitational waves is that because the pulsars uh, themselves can have differences in, in the way they emit radiation. You cannot just observe one pulsar and detect gravitational waves. You need an ensemble of pulsars to be able to say that it was really a gravitational wave that you have measured and not something that you don't know about but was just local to the pulsar itself. So generally, how many pulsars would you like to have a good sample? Optimally, we would like to have as many pulsars as, as possible <laughs> to, to do that. But unfortunately, not all pulsars are suitable for this type of work. We really need uh, the so-called millisecond pulsars, mm -hmm. as they are the most stable ones. And we are looking at the precision level of, of the observations of about 100 nanoseconds that we mm -hmm. need to reach. And at the moment, we only have about three or four of those pulsars that are really good enough. Okay. So... At the moment, a main part of my work is is, is focused on, on, in the first place, improving the ones that we have, but they are not slightly not good enough, mm -hmm. or to find more new pulsars that are good enough to be included in this ensemble that we need to uh, detect mm -hmm. gravitational waves. So what does the future of the research involve? We can build larger telescopes, so we have more sensitivity for the pulsars themselves, which improves the the precision of each pulsar individually. So that's a project that we're doing in Europe right now, and it's called LEAP, the Large European Array for Pulsars. We're sort of at the maximum what we can build for a single telescope, but what we can do is, in a clever way, connect these telescopes together. At the moment, we have um, four and almost five radio telescopes in Europe. Mm. We have the Lovell here in, in the UK. We have the Westerbork Telescope in the Netherlands, the Effelsberg Telescope in Germany, and an Anse telescope in France, and hopefully this year we will have another one, which is the Sardinia Radio Telescope uh, in Italy.
So what we do is we um, we observe the same pulsar at the same time with all these telescopes, and then all the signals of these telescopes we add up in a coherent way, so they all do exactly the same thing, and then we end up with a telescope which is a lot bigger. It's it's basically a virtual telescope mm-hmm. that we're we're making, but the signal is going to improve. And so hopefully. how much improvement do you hope to get? What we're hoping for is an order of magnitude, so. Uh, from a factor of 5 to a factor of mm-hmm. 10 improvement in the timing precision mm-hmm. for each pulsar and that's hopefully just what we need if we have uh, about 5 years with this new telescope we might be able to actually detect the gravitational waves that we're looking for okay cool and what's your role here at Jodrell Bank because we have the four telescopes that are all in different places in Europe it's it's not trivial to observe the same pulsar at the same time also, all these telescopes have different setups. So you have telescopes like the, the Lovell telescope, which are um, just a large dish, which is set up in a way that it can rotate on the, on the ground and, and then um, have the, the bowl tip over in, in elevation. Um, for example, the Westerbork telescope, it's, it's an array of small dishes and it's, uh, it's slightly differently mounted. So it's called an equatorial mount. It has different... Um, limitations in, in what part of the sky it can see at a, a specific time of day. And then we have the Nancé telescope, which is a, a very uncommon way of, of a telescope. So it, it's it's set up in a way that it can only see a very tiny part of the sky at the moment, but it's really a, a quite a powerful telescope. But having that telescope in a virtual dish that we're trying to create means that you can only look to the south really for the the pulses that you need. So to make an optimal schedule of what we do is we observe 24 hours in in one go Mm -hmm. and to make an an optimal schedule using as many telescopes as you can and having the best improvement in in your timing precision. That's uh, what I do and also trying to find the best pulsars uh, to include in, in the subset that we want to observe. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us here today. Very welcome. Thanks for that, Filippa. Now we have Livy talking to Maria del Mar Rubio about clumpy mass loss from massive stars. Joining me on the Jogcast today is Maria del Mar Rubio from the Astrobiology Centre in Madrid. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. Hello. And you work on stellar winds in massive stars. Can you start off by telling me what do you mean by a massive star? Well, um, massive stars are uh, stars uh, with uh, stellar masses above the 10 solar masses. So they are the m- most <laughs> massive stars. And these are, would you, if you were looking in the sky, would these be the big blue stars that you see? The- uh, yeah, e- because they have high luminosities. When you look at the sky, sometimes you can see blue star, very bright blue star. So yeah, you can see it by eye. So these are the type of stars that you work on. And these, these stars have a stellar wind. Can you please tell me a bit more about the winds of these stars? One of the most characteristic things in massive stars uh, is that they have a very strong winds. Okay, like a storm, you can imagine a storm. Very hot. <laughs> so this is the stellar wind in massive star. But the point is that uh, the velocity range uh, between 100 uh, until 2,000 kilometers per second. So these are very, very fast winds then yeah, for these stars. Yeah, yeah. And how much mass per year do they typically lose? Oof. Typically, well, typically. Or typical range? Yeah, yeah, the typical range for massive star because all stars, all kinds of stars, uh, lose some 
solar mass, but for massive star, the the range is uh, from 10 to the minus 8 to 10 to the minus 4 uh, solar mass per year. So they're losing a, a lot, lot of mass. <laughs> a lot. But it's logical because the mass of this star are very high. The lowest uh, massive is only 10 solar mass, okay? But the highest right now is like 115 solar masses. The most massive star, the higher mass loss. The more massive stars, that mass loss won't seem as drastic to a small mass star yeah. like our sun. Yeah. How do you measure the speed of these winds or the mass of the winds? To speed the velocity of this wind, a standard way is to measure lines, emission lines. In the spectra? In the spectra. So you take a spectra, it's the bend of the wavelength range, you can observe in optical or in infrared, and then you measure the broad of the line, and well, you can do a little calculation and technical stuff, and you you can get velocity of the of the wings. For the mass loss rates of the star, it's quite similar, but uh, you can use uh, in this case you can use line emission in the spectra or continuum emission. And if you use a, a line emission in and you use a spectra. The best way to do that is to use you know a mod a model and overplot. <laughs> you know, in simple words, is overplot to your spectra and change the parameter the stellar parameters of the star. Then you can find the mass loss rate. So and do different lines tell you about different bits of the star? Yeah, but this is a new thing. Well, new, you know. Uh, it's relatively new. Yeah, it's uh, because uh, we discovered that uh, depending on the wavelength, you can find different things. So you can study, okay, the different region of the wing uh, if you look at different wavelength range. So if you want to know something about the inner part of the wing, then you can use normally yeah, the far ultraviolet range or optical. But if you want to know something about the outermost uh, wing, then you can use the, ra the radio wavelength. So the longer the wavelength, the further out from yeah. the star. Yeah, this is the idea. And you can tell lots of information. You've been studying clumping in winds. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell me <laughs> what is clumping? The simpler words... <laughs> Is a uh, clamping is like it's like a small ball of material in the wing. I mean, when you are doing your breakfast and you put chocolate or cacao in your milk, you cannot dissolve perfectly, no. So the idea is uh, exactly the same. The massive star loss uh, mass, but it's not homogeneous. So then you have a little balls of material in the wing. So previously, before your work, everyone used to assume that it was all the same in the wind. It was like a, a spherical ball. Well, you know, all if, if, in physics, <laughs> <laughs> every, every theory in physics, you know, is oversimplified, okay? So the best theory to explain the wing is uh, they use, uh, you know, the homogeneous wing. So the idea is, yeah, we can think that it's homogeneous, but the reality is these clumps. Is, yeah, is that is clumps. So we have to change it. And what do clumps have an effect with the models that say it's homogeneous compared to models with clumps? The evidence says that the current mass loss rates are overestimated. 
So if you factor in clumping, then the mass loss rate will be less than what you were thinking it was. Well, is the band which kind of massive star you have? Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not one big massive star. No, no, all them, no, no. It's the band of which kind is is the band. How strong is the wing? It's the band of a lot of things. So do you look at one star in particular or are you looking at many stars? I, I look in different kind of massive star. So I study super giants, uh, giants and world Rayet and LV View. Also very young high mass stars and rough massive star because we have a completely different problem, problem in draft stars so it's not simple it seems very interesting and how are you looking at clumping are you using optical wavelengths are you using infrared the properly way to do that is look at all the wavelengths and so this is very complicated the good thing is we have archive data so if we don't have you know, any region of the wing, we can apply for observing time and try to complete the R sampling. So the best way to do that is the whole... Uh, the whole wavelength. The, yeah, because your our knowledge of the clumping in the whole wing is much, uh, much better. Does clumping occur near to the star, near its core, or does it occur in the outer layers, near in the longer wavelengths? The clumping is the result... Okay, of the combination of mass loss and velocity. So it's not that the clamping started at some point in the star. It's a combination. But some studies conclude that the uh, radial certification of the clamping decreases with the wavelength. I mean, it's higher, you know, the clamping is higher in the in inner part of the wing than in the outer part of the wing but it's not for all the stars so <laughs> this is the problem okay well i wish you best of luck with your research and thank you for talking to us today thank you thanks for that Libby. now we come to the part of the show where we feed in all those other things we can feed anywhere else the odds and ends so Hector, what do you have a team from the harvard smithsonian center for astrophysics has used uh, data from the kepler telescope whose mission is hunt for planets in our galaxy by analyzing the light from over a hundred thousand stars. The way it finds new planets is just measuring the dips in the brightness of the stars as the planets orbiting them pass between the star and us. And they have discovered that around six percent of all dwarf stars in the galaxy could have Earth sized planets orbiting in the habitable zone of the system. What does this mean? They have analyzed 95 planet candidates around 64 stars, uh, red dwarf stars, and among them they found three that uh, match these conditions. That is, having a mass, uh, uh, actually a size, because we cannot measure their mass first, a size close to the one of the Earth, and orbits that take them at a distance from the stars where it could be cool enough to actually have liquid water in their surfaces. Now, these planets are around 300 or three, uh, 600 light years from Earth. But doing a bit of statistics, since the red dwarfs are the most common kind of star in the galaxy, actually we think there are 75 billion red dwarfs in the Milky Way alone. And you can tell that 
there's a lot of planets if these three are representative. So, judging by the spacing of the stars in our region of the galaxy, if there's a shrewd halts, that would mean that Earth-like planets are only about 13 light years apart, which is a very close distance. Now, this doesn't mean that all those planets will have life in them. For example, uh, the stars are have a lower mass than the Sun. They are about a third of the size. And that makes them lock into the orbit, facing only the uh, same size to the star all the time, like the Moon does to Earth. That would make the planet have one side really hot, the other side really cold, and the region between them is the one that we think could be habitable. Also, the red dwarfs, when they are young, have a strong magnetic activity, leading to strong ultraviolet flares, way, way stronger than the, the solar flares on the solar system. So we have no idea if they have atmosphere, and if a planet doesn't have an atmosphere, the water just boils away or freezes. But, uh, in the good news bit, red dwarfs live much longer than our own sun, so we could be finding some planets around them that are between, like, 8 or 10 billion years old. Have in mind that the Earth is just about 4.5 billion years old. So if these planets indeed have life, this life will have had a long time to evolve. Here, intelligence took on about like 3 billion years to emerge. <laughs> so even if it was harder in those systems, they had much more time. Brilliant. That's, that's really interesting. That's really cool. Like 13 light years away from us it yeah, might that's be a, a very, very evolved society <laughs> <laughs> hopefully like the six percent six percent of 75 billion red dwarfs means like four and a half billion earth-sized planets in the habitable zone in the milky way potentially at least around those kind yeah. of stars yeah and we, we would need to know a number around the other stars yeah which could bring the numbers up but the odds look quite good I guess. There's yeah. something out there. Might be. Maybe, yeah, maybe he's being really optimistic because you're saying a sample of three planets only, but it could. Well, for the moment, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence has been using Kepler data to point the telescope at stars where we think there could be multiple planets or planets in good orbits. And they haven't found anything yet. <laughs> so the search keeps going on. So what I have for you today is I'm going to talk about a 3D printing of a moon base. So this is an architect's uh, firm called Foster and Partners who have joined with ESA to test the feasibility of a 3D printing using lunar soil. They they have been investigating if they could do a lunar habitat. So what they want to do is kind of like a dome in the moon with a cellular structure wall to shield against micrometeors and space radiation, incorporating a pressurized inflatable to shelter astronauts. So they call it like a hollow closed cell structure. So the 3D printing offers a potential um, means of facilitating lunar settlements with reduced logistics from Earth, of course. <laughs> and what they want to do is um, work with international space agencies and develop this exploration strategy to build stations on the moon. And the way they're going to do it is that they, so the 3D printouts are built layer by layer. Typically they use, they used to create sculptors and they're working in, when, on artificial 
coral reefs to help preserve the beaches from the energetic sea waves. So first, what they do, what they want to do is they make, they want to mix the simulated lunar material with magnesium oxide. And this will be kind of the paper that they will use. And then sort of like the ink will be to apply a binding salt, which converts material to a stone-like solid. So this, this is what they will try to do. And they, they have been doing some tests already. And what, what really struck me was that currently a 3D printer, it builds a rate of around two meter per hour. And they were saying that the next generation of 3D printers will be 3.5 meters per hour. And this means that they can complete an entire building in a week. <laughs> <laughs> so that's pretty quick. 3D printers are kind of still puzzling to me. Like, So they're making things. They're not just obviously printing like a flat printer, but do they just make any structure out of any material? Or do they actually construct the building? Or Well, normally they have like deposits of materials that you will want the structure to be made of and you make it like if you had sections of it like horizontally and print it layer by layer as Liz said or there are some kinds of printers that would just I think in the lunar base one they might just have a box of the lunar surface material and inject the conglomerating like the glue uh, the, the glue so you could make a structure inside that material and then the rest gets discarded okay. to get a hollow structure, lightweight. So they're talking about flying the printer to the moon and then collecting the moon material and actually using that to build the base. Is that the plan? I think so. I mean, so far they've been doing tests with, with some lunar material and tried to see if they can... So that, that was the thing, mix it with magnesium oxide and see if they can make their structures and how strong will the structure be because why they want to this is why they want to to have like a like a dome that shields the astronauts from cosmic rays and everything so the way it works is literally you're not a computer you just put whatever 3d structure you want and then it will build i'm i'm guessing it i mean it, it doesn't build the whole structure it just builds different parts mm -hmm. and then you have to put it all together but still i mean an entire building in a week. That's just like, it's <laughs> insane. It's like, I'm going to build my house in a week. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. And mostly right? automatic, I guess, as well. Not too many yeah. people needed to. Exactly, I guess. Yeah. You could send the people when the base is already built. Yeah. And you could, you could send the base as an inflatable thing that then you cover with this 3D printed structure to protect the people from the meteorites and the radiation. So you don't have to carry a lot of mass from Earth to the Moon, which is very expensive. Of course. And that saves a lot, would make it more, much more affordable. Yeah. Look okay. forward to that. Well, my odd and end comes from Mercury, or at least it might do. Um, it's about some meteorites, some little chunks of meteorite totaling about 350 grams, which were found in Morocco. And they may, there's quite a good chance, according to a recent paper, that they actually come from the planet Mercury. So we know that there are already meteorites that have been collected that have come from Mars and the Moon and the asteroid Vesta as well. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been produced, presumably, by something smacking into those objects at some time in the past, blasting fragments out into space, and then some of those happen to end up on the Earth. Um, but the, the way they get identified is that they compare the composition of these meteorites to the composition of the bodies in the solar system. 
And there's been a few that haven't quite matched up to any of the known objects. And the thing about this one that may be from Mercury is that no probe has ever landed on the surface of Mercury to take a sample and get a really good um, reading of what's in it. Uh, but there's now the Messenger spacecraft which orbits Mercury and uses the light reflected off Mercury to assess what materials are in its surface. And they match pretty well with these newly found meteorites. Mm -hmm. So they're talking about a lot of magnesium, a lot of calcium and hardly any iron. However, there's a slight issue in that there's a bit too much calcium in the meteorites. All right. Um, but they're saying there's a pretty high chance that they just came from somewhere under the surface, perhaps at a different time, or a few things could have happened to maybe change the composition slightly. For a real good assessment of whether it comes from Mercury, they have to wait till they have a sample of Mercurian soil. Mm -hmm or surface, but until then they're going to do various things like looking to see if these meteorites have uh, magnetic properties that might indicate they've come from a body with a magnetic field, and trying to estimate their age since they got blasted off wherever they came from, um, and that apparently is done by looking for the influence of cosmic rays, which would have been striking the object all the time it was in space. It's really interesting. So it's just an interesting one because if it's true then these will be the first fragments of, of the planet Mercury which anyone has ever got hold of. And they all belong to one meteorite dealer, apparently, as well, <laughs> who's given a little bit of them to scientists to test and is going to sell the rest of them. And so he's just waiting to someone to say, yeah, they're from Mercury, the planet Mercury, and then they can and sell it for millions probably. and millions. Of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know much about the meteorite industry, but apparently there's a whole market and obviously, if your meteorite happens to be even rarer than the usual, then that's going to shoot the price right up. Very expensive, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. There is an interesting object as well. It sort of looks green. It's very green, apparently. It's had various episodes of sort of melting occurring. First of all, when something actually blasted it off the surface, and then secondly, when it came through the atmosphere. And it's all sort of veiny. It sort of looks a bit like a leaf. So it's kind of an interesting-looking stone. Nice. How big is it? Do you know? Well, they're saying 350 grams in total. The largest individual fragment, it says, is about the size of a golf ball. Okay. But it would just, if true, then it would give us a much better idea of what Mercury is actually made of. And perhaps we could learn something about the history of, of the solar planet. system formation as well. Yeah. That's pretty cool. The curious thing is that uh, it's more probable to get meteorites from Venus than from Mercury, but we haven't found any. Really? Yeah. Does the atmosphere of Venus have anything to do Could with be, that because some, the atmosphere of Venus is so dense that some meteor just blasts before reaching the surface. Mm. So it would yeah. be harder to get material out of there. Yeah. But who knows? I'd never really even considered the fact that no spacecraft has ever landed on Mercury. It, it's mm. a rocky planet, it's relatively close, but it's still, relatively speaking, quite unexplored. I mean, compared to Mars, anyway. And now, dealing with your astronomical questions... At no extra charge, it's Dr. Michael Brown. So the first question we got this month is from Mark Foskey. I frequently hear it explained that the universe consists of about 5% regular matter, 20% dark matter, and 70% dark energy. How is this bookkeeping done? How do you measure dark energy against regular matter? I suppose the energy must have a mass equivalent via E equals mc squared, but how can the energy even be tallied? 
Okay, so that's uh, that's correct. So as Mark says, mass and energy are indeed equivalent via Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared. And the conclusion that the matter-energy content of our universe is made up of 5% normal or baryonic matter, 23% dark matter, and the remaining 72% in dark energy, that's one of the key outcomes of, of modern cosmology. So let me try to explain how we have come to this conclusion. So first we need to establish the total amount of matter-energy in the universe. So according to Einstein's theory of general relativity, we can establish the amount of matter-energy present in the universe by measuring what's called the geometry of space-time. So space-time could be curved, like the surface of a ball or a sphere, or it could be flat, like a perfectly horizontal sheet. So you may have heard the phrase, matter tells space-time how to curve, while space-time tells matter uh, how to move. So if we can measure the curvature of space-time, then we can deduce the total amount of matter in the universe. So it turns out that we can measure the curvature of space-time by looking at the cosmic microwave background. So this is a relic radiation that's left over from the Big Bang in the early universe, and it has fluctuations in its, in its intensity, so it's slightly hotter in some directions and slightly cooler in others. And it turns out that the size of these fluctuations tells us very precisely what this curvature in the space-time is. So when they've taken the measurements, it turns out that they're just the right size so that space-time has almost exactly zero curvature on average. Or in other words, the universe contains just the right amount of matter energy so that it's spatially flat. Okay, so that tells us now the total amount of matter in the universe. Um, and now the second key component of cosmology is the theory of Big Bang nucleosynthesis. And this tells us how the various different elements formed in the, in the early universe. So, for example, uh, nucleosynthesis explains why the universe is mostly made of hydrogen with about 20% helium and then only traces of the other elements. So it turns out that the exact ratios of the amounts of hydrogen, helium and the other elements is very dependent on the total amount of regular matter in the universe. So we can measure these relative abundances of hydrogen, helium etc. very precisely. And these indicate that the total amount of normal matter is only about 5% of what's needed to make the universe space-time spatially flat. Okay, so what's the other 95% then? Well, we've had hints of what could make up this 95% for quite a while. So one very important observation is to look at galaxy rotation curves. So galaxies rotate due to the conservation of angular momentum. And when we measure the rotation speeds of stars within galaxies, we find that they rotate much faster than we'd expect from the amount of visible matter that we can see. It turns out that in order to explain the very fast speeds we see, we need to invoke the existence of a large amount of unseen dark matter surrounding the galaxy. So we call this matter dark because, well, we can't see it, mm -hmm. um, or even detect it with our own instruments, actually. So, in fact, we're still waiting for the first detection of a subatomic particle that could be responsible for the dark matter. But the detailed calculation, taking into account the rotation curves, suggests that the dark matter makes up about 23% of the amount needed to make the universe spatially flat. Okay, so we've got 23% from the dark matter, we've got 5% from the baryonic matter, but that still leaves a lot, yeah. uh, 72% of the matter energy which is unaccounted for. So what could this be? 
Well, this is where the story gets truly bizarre. So in a universe that only contains normal matter and dark matter, we'd expect the expansion of the universe, which originated in the Big Bang, to be slowing down. So the gravitational attraction of the matter tends to pull things towards each other. However, recent observations of supernova explosions indicate that contrary to this, the expansion of the universe is actually accelerating. So supernovae are all the same brightness, and what we observe is that the most distant ones are fainter than we'd naively expect, and it turns out that this can only be explained by an acceleration in the expansion of the universe. So we've no idea, actually, what's causing this accelerated expansion, and so we give it the name dark energy. And it's this dark energy that makes up the remaining 72% of the matter energy in the universe. So finding out what this dark energy is is probably the biggest question in all of cosmology today. And yeah. it's a very active area of research. Whatever it is, it's a really weird substance, right? Because unlike gravity, so gravity is an attractive force, but unlike gravity, dark energy tends to make things repel from each other, so some sort of repulsive force. And interestingly, in, in recent times, cosmologists have also suggested another possibility to explain the accelerating universe, which is that maybe we don't actually understand gravity perfectly well on the very largest scales. And so that could require modifications to general relativity, for example. But either way, whether it's a dark substance that forces things to repel from each other, or whether it's a modification to general relativity, it's clearly really a very exciting field of research and a very exciting time to be a cosmologist. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Okay, so the second question says, can temperature and pressure in a black hole's accretion disk, or supermassive black hole, reach sufficient levels to ignite nuclear fusion? Is this what powers an AGN, or is this just gravity and friction? Thank you. And this question is from Richard Elvin. Okay, another very interesting question, and, and the short answer to this is yes, the temperature and pressure certainly do get large enough to ignite nuclear burning, but we actually don't think that this is the dominant mechanism by which an AGN is powered. Okay, so an AGN, or an active galactic nuclei, these are the most powerful astronomical objects that we know of in the sky, and they shine with the brightness of about a billion stars. So as Richard says, we think that an AGN consists of a black hole at the centre of a galaxy, accreting material from, from the galactic disk. So because galaxies rotate, and in order to maintain angular momentum, the gas and stars tend to form a disk around the centre of the galaxy. And we think that most galaxies have a supermassive black hole at their centre. So in some cases, the black hole will begin accreting material, that is, the stars and gas and dust, that make up the galactic disk, and we think this is what's happening in an AGN. So it's pretty well established that the accretion of material is the source of the huge amount of energy that an AGN outputs, but what the actual physical process responsible is, is actually still an unsolved problem. So certainly the temperature and pressure do reach extreme levels uh, in the accretion material close into the black hole, certainly high enough for nuclear burning to occur, but we don't think that nuclear burning can be solely responsible for producing the huge amounts of radiation that we see. And here's, here's the reason we think that. So the one thing that we do know about the physical process is that it's an extremely efficient process. 
converting the material in the, in the accretion disk into the huge amounts of radiation that we see. So we can measure the amount of matter in accretion disks through observations, and by comparing with the amount of radiation that we see in AGN, we can say that the efficiency of the mass-to-energy conversion process in an AGN is about 10%. That's an extremely efficient mass-to-energy conversion process. So if you could find out how it works, and if you could channel it here on Earth, then mm. I think our long-term sustainable energy problems might be solved. <laughs> but to compare with nuclear fusion, we know that nuclear burning releases at most 0.7% of the mass energy stored in the fuel. So that's nowhere near the 10% efficiency that we require to explain the AGN uh, luminosities. So once again, your questioners are, are throwing up puzzles that we don't know the answers <laughs> to, but uh, this is another area that is still the subject of ongoing research. Brilliant. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. And if you have any more questions, just send them to the website. Thanks for that, Michael and Liz. You're welcome. <laughs> you can say that if you want. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. Anyway, so now we're in the part of the feedback. Um, I think there's something wrong with the post because we haven't got any posts. But please send us something if you if you want. Um, the address is on on the website. Um, we got an email though from Gary Edwards, and he's saying that it's a great show that he loves listening to our postcard while shunting trailers around Felix Toe docks. He said that he should have listened in school. Um, he remembers that as a boy being taken on a school trip to Jodlebank, and he said that it was amazing. So thank you for the email, Gary. I like these ones where people are telling us what they do when they listen to the Jodcast. Yeah. So I guess Gary is maybe loading crates onto ships that are about to sail on the sea from Felixstowe, which is kind of cool, whilst listening to the Jodcast, so I hope it's not spoiling your concentration. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty awesome. I, I kind of wanted to say that he might ship my stuff because I got a postdoc in Chile, so I'm going to go and I'm going to ship all my things from probably, well, I don't know, actually, I don't know where they will go from, but around here to Chile. So Wouldn't it be ironic if someone was listening to you? Not concentrating, and then they drop you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that Oops. won't be around. <laughs> well, it would just be rubbish. <laughs> everything is in shorts anyway, but yeah. I'm please, sure, please don't drop in. <laughs> I'm sure that's not going to happen. Um, onto the forum. Works, Paul. Thank you for posting. He paid tribute to Sir Patrick Moore, who presented the sky at night for such a long time. And he said, how about naming the Mark II telescope, that's a telescope at Jodrell Bank, the Coldwell Moore telescope? That would sort of be after the idea where the Mark I telescope ended up becoming the Mark One a and then eventually the Lovell telescope named after Bernard Lovell. Yeah. So thank you for that suggestion. And also to John Edge, who, when we corrected uh, the times of the near-Earth object, um, pointed us to the Heavens Above website where you can get up-to-date times for when you can see it. And that, that is an excellent website because you can also see when you can observe things like the International Space Station, even the Chinese Space Station, Tiangong-1, and even now, um, the North Korean satellite, if you want to see that. Nice. <laughs> and now on Facebook, we want to thank you for all the likes and welcome the new followers. And on Twitter, the Reddit Astronomical Society has a website with daily links to astronomy news stories, and they say they used us as a source for some of those. Also, Coconino directed us to some master cookies with fabulously accurate constellations drawn onto them with icing. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> and tasty. Yeah. 
And also, we want to thank you for all the retweets and the follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. Thanks to Hema Jansen and Maria del Mar Rubio for the interviews. The editors were Dan Thornton, Sally Cooper, Mark Perver, and Christina Smith. The producer was Mark Perver. Until next time, Jodon. Well